Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Douglas Crimp is the rare art critic who profoundly influenced a generation of artists. He is best known for his work with the Pictures Generation, a name Crimp coined to define the work of artists like Robert Longo and Cindy Sherman, who appropriated images from mass culture to carry out a subversive critique. But while his influence is widely recognized, little is known about Crimp's own formative experiences before the Pictures Generation. On January 8, 2017, Douglas Crimp joined Lynn Cook to discuss the publication of Before Pictures, part biography and part cultural history. Before Pictures is a courageous account of an exceptional period in both Crimp's life and the life of New York City during the late 1960s through the turbulent 1970s. My name is Lynn Cook. I'm the Senior Curator for Special Projects in Modern Art at the National Gallery. And it's my pleasure to introduce Douglas Crimp, with whom I'll be having a discussion this afternoon, to celebrate the publication of his book, uh, Before Pictures. I won't list um, Douglas's accomplishments now, but rather use the opportunity to talk with him to bring out his biography uh, and, and um, to set this book in the context of earlier work. The format we're going to use today is that Douglas will read from the book for uh, 10 to 12 minutes, and then we'll have a discussion. And after that, in the last 10 minutes or so, we'll open it to um, questions from the floor. So please join me in welcoming Douglas. Thank you, and thank you, Lynn. Um, it might be more like 20 minutes. <laughs> Let me just say one thing about the book uh, before I start, and that is that I, it, it covers the, my first 10 years in New York City from 67 to 77. Uh, 77 is the date of the picture show, which is the event for which I first became known, and uh, hence the title Before Pictures. I organized it by um, <clears throat> uh, taking as an occasion for each chapter uh, something that I did professionally in this 10-year period. So I'm going to read first from the first chapter, which involves uh, my two first jobs in New York, uh, as you'll see. <clears throat> I often tell the story of my first job in New York. I had come to the city in 1968 after graduating from college with a degree in art history. I set out one day from my Spanish Harlem apartment to go to the Metropolitan Muse Museum of Art, where I planned to apply for a job. As I walked down Fifth Avenue from 98th Street, I came upon the Guggenheim and thought to myself, here's a museum, I might as well try this one. I inquired of the first person I encountered in the lobby of what was then the administration wing about applying for a job. His immediate reply to my surprise was to ask, do you know anything about pre-Columbian art? Yes, I answered, I studied it extensively in college. And so, after very little further discussion, I was offered a job. 
Entirely fortuitously, just at that moment, the Guggenheim was getting ready to install a large exhibition of pre-Columbian Peruvian art. But Thomas Messer, the Guggenheim's director at the time, had quarreled with the show's guest curator, Peruvian textile expert Alan Sawyer, and ordered him out of the museum, whereupon some 800 art objects arrived from Lima, and no one at the Guggenheim, on the Guggenheim staff, all of whom were trained as modernists, knew a moche pot from a Nazca pot. So it was thought that I might be able to help out with the installation and afterward man the visitor information desk. I subsequently managed to convince the Guggenheim administration that my real field of expertise was modern art, and so I was kept on staff as a curatorial assistant. I've told this story so many times over the years that I, know, I no longer know how much of it is simplified in the interest of narrative design and how much is embellished in the interest of amusement. I certainly remember working on the installation of the exhibition Master Craftsman of Ancient Peru in the fall of 1968. More vividly, I remember the black tie opening, particularly the fact that some of the guests seemed to wish to compete with the exhibit. I was dazzled by socialite Doris Duke's very large Peruvian necklace, and even more dazzled by seeing art collector Ethel Skull, famous for her portrait by Andy Warhol, who, evidently having no ancient Peruvian jewelry to wear, carried with her a small pillow on which rested a gold jaguar figurine. It was the wrong pre-Columbian culture, but it made an impression. Her matching gold lame pantaloon jumpsuit, all the more so. I remember, too, that Pisco Sours, cocktails made with Peruvian brandy, were served at the opening. Also, the Guggenheim in those days always served giant boiled shrimp as hors d'oeuvres at their gala openings. A year or so into my tenure at the museum, a group of us tried unsuccessfully to organize the staff to join a labor union. One of our arguments was that the budget for these private parties was way out of proportion to the budget for our pitifully low staff salaries. Still, I was pleased to say that I worked at the Guggenheim. It was a famous museum, one of the most famous, because it had a famous building, one of the most famous. And that made my job seem very glamorous. My memory of just how glamorous it felt was rekindled in 1999 when I saw in the Museum of Modern Art's exhibition catalog for the Museum as Muse, a photograph by Gary Winogrand of the Guggenheim 10th anniversary party in 1970. You'll have to take it on faith that the blurred fingers on the left edge of Winogrand's picture are mine. I was dancing with the woman in white in the picture, whose name is Nicole, and whose port de bras confirms what I remember best about her, that she came to New York from the south of France to study with Martha Graham. After all these years, I still enjoy telling people the story about my first job in New York, working at the Guggenheim Museum. But the story isn't true. That is, 
It isn't true that my first job in New York was working at the Guggenheim. I have another story of my first job in New York, but I tell it more selectively because it entails a different sort of glamour. I had left college once before to come to New York in 1967, before finishing my degree. In what should have been my final semester at Tulane University, I was so worried about being drafted into the military during the Vietnam War, I was too worried about being drafted into the military during the Vietnam War to concentrate on my schoolwork. Or rather, what preoccupied me was the way I would escape the draft. In order to be classified 4F, that is, unfit to serve, I told the Army at my induction physical that I was gay. That was not so easy in those days. Homosexual acts were still illegal in most of the 50 states, and known homosexuals were barred from civil service jobs of any kind, even working in a post office. Nevertheless, during the war, young men were so desperate to escape the draft that many claimed to be gay whether or not it was true. Consequently, the military required proof in the form of an official letter from, from a psychiatrist. I thus had to disclose my sexuality to not only the military doctors, but also the university psychiatric counselor. Anxiety spoiled what should have been my first semester at Tulane. So I quit school and moved to New York, where I got my first job in the summer of 1967. Charles James hired me to help him organize his papers for the purpose of writing his memoirs. At the time, James was nearly destitute and living in a squalid suite of rooms at the Chelsea Hotel. My job didn't last at all, uh, long at all. In fact, only a couple of weeks. I resented having to do menial tasks, like walking his beagle around Chelsea. I wasn't happy that he was slipping amphetamines into my morning coffee. I couldn't tolerate his tantrums. The last straw was his telling me that instead of paying me for my work, he would open a charge account for me at Barney's. All told, I just wasn't ready for Charles James. Even so, I love being able to say that my first job in New York was working for him, a story that I tell shamelessly in some circles, circles where it has even greater cachet than saying that my first job in New York was working at the Guggenheim Museum. But who is Charles James? He is a cult figure in the fashion world, where he is regarded as America's greatest, perhaps only, couturier. He is this, was the subject of the Metropolitan Museum's annual Summer Costume Institute exhibition in 2014. James's career spanned the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He was the dressmaker of choice for many well-known society women of his era, Babe Paley, Millicent Roger, Rogers, Lee Radziwill. For other fashion designers, Coco Chanel, Elsa Schiaparelli, for opera divas, Lily Pons and Risa Stevens, ballerinas, Alicia Markova and Tamara Karsavina, and movie stars, Gloria Swanson, Marlena Dietrich, Jennifer Jones, and even Janet Gaynor, who hardly needed a dress designer since she was married to Adrian. James was highly regarded in the art world, which was unusual for a fashion designer. 
He received praise from Museum of Modern Art director Alfred Barr, and his work was the subject of a solo exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum while he was in, while he was in his early 40s. Artist Lee Krasner and art patron Dominique Dumenil were clients. Indeed, James not only made clothes for Mrs. Dumenil, but also decorated the interior of her modernist house in Houston, designed by Philip Johnson in his early Miesian phase in 1948. James's art world connections explain my getting a job with him. Another of his clients uh, was my friend, my college friend Johann's mother, Jean Boltman, who knew that James needed an assistant and recommended me. These people venerated James as both a fashion designer and an artist, a sculptor in cloth. At the beginning of his career, he billed himself as a sartorial structural architect. He was famous for draping fabric directly on his clients' bodies in the initial process of constructing their clothes. Richard Martin, the late curator of the Metropolitan Museum's Costume Institute, described James' dresses as monumentals, monumental sculptures in cloth. A James dress, he, he wrote, could very nearly stand on its own, so filled was it, was it with material, but the picturesque effect was that of a dream walking. Bombastic would be an accurate adjective for many of James's gowns. The original meaning of the noun form bombast is padding for clothes. In spite of the discrepancy between the work's bulky structure and gossamer appearance, James was considered by some to be a true modernist. The following recollection from one of James's clients reads to me as a wonderful parody of the idea of modernist autonomy in its description of the subject-object relation between dress, the dress, and its owner. And this is a quote from his client. He was sometimes so entranced by the shape he was sculpting over one's own shape that when the dress arrived finished, it was impossible to get into it. It existed on its own. Much time was then spent in discerning the proper relationship between shapes. I like to picture this scene in the lady's dressing room. Unable to get herself into her new gown, she simply positions herself somewhere near it and contemplates it, as a self-reflexive work of art it surely must be. Compare this account from Anne, Countess of Ross, another James client, and I quote again, but the wearer, if she wanted to enjoy his creations, had sometimes to be sacrificed to the designs. To begin with, there could be the mystery of how to get into the clothes when they arrived, or which was the front and which the back, which he might have altered at the last moment. With some, walking might be difficult, or sitting down tricky, but an appreciative wearer would gladly cooperate. That modern forms do not necessarily follow function was one of the lessons of the museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology's 2004 exhibition from Form Follows Fashion, which featured James as presiding genius. James received the Cody American Fashion Critics Award in 1950, 
lauded not for the mystery of how or whether a dress was to be worn, but for, and I quote again, the great mystery of color and the artistry of draping. So that's what I'll read from that chapter. And I think um, I can do another few minutes from, in this case, the final chapter. Um, and I do this for a particular reason. This is the chapter, final chapter is called Pictures Before and After and is about the making of the picture show. And just for understanding this text, you should know that I wrote a catalog essay for the pictures exhibition at Artist Space in 1977. I completely rewrote it and published it in the journal October, of which I was an editor in 1979. So there are two pictures essays. <clears throat> And I read this particularly because much of the work that I do in this book, which is partly memoir and partly criticism and cultural history, is to actually return to my earlier work and to rewrite uh, critical essays from this period. And this is an example of that. Although extremely brief and simple, a ballet shoe, this is the ballet shoe is by Jack Goldstein, and, and it was a film in the picture show. A ballet shoe is often inaccurately described. For example, I wrote in the revised pictures essay, a pair of hands comes in from either side of the film frame and unties the ribbon of the shoe. The dancer moves off point. The entire film lasts 22 seconds. In fact, the hands do not come into the frame. They are already there when the, frame, when the film begins. Let me have another go at it. A ballet shoe shows a ballet dancer's foot from just above the ankle standing on point on a hardwood floor. The ribbons of her point shoe are, the, the ribbons of her point shoe are tied in a bow and their ends are held by the thumb and index fingers of a pair of hands. These hands slight, uh, slowly pull away, pull, pull sideways until the bow is untied whereupon they drop the ribbons and disappear from the frame on either side. The ribbons dangle to the floor and the dancer slowly descends from point. When her heel touches the floor, her ankle relaxes and pulls slightly upward and the film comes to an end. Including the brief title at the beginning, the film lasts 40 seconds. A ballet shoe scenario if we can call it that, is odd. Ballet dancers tie their point shoe ribbons in a knot, not a bow. A bow wouldn't be secure enough. And they tuck the, end, the ends inside the ribbon that wraps around the ankle to hide them. So one would not see a bow on a dancer's shoe when she stands on point. Goldstein imagined this. In the October version of pictures, I wrote of the film's fragmented images by which I meant the disembodied foot and hands, as well as the unexplained untying action, and this is a quote from my earlier text, generating multiple psychological and tropological resonances. But I didn't say what those resonances are. I surely had fetishism in mind, and I might ha have felt that the untying suggests disrobing, perhaps even despoiling. Temporality is key. 
However short a ballet shoe is and however truncated its event, however much it converts event into image, it requires time. It is a picture that occurs over time. This is obviously the case regarding the hands untying the ribbon, but it is also important for what follows the untying, the descent from point. Most descriptions of a ballet shoe describe this moment in such a way as to suggest the dancer could not stay on point once the ribbon was untied. Thus, film scholar David James writes, and I quote, the foot of the dancer on point occupies the frame until a man's hands untie the shoe's ribbons, releasing the tension and causing the dancer's foot to sink to the floor. It's not the ribbon that maintains the tension in the dancer's foot, nor does the, the, the foot sink to the floor. I repeat, the dancer slowly descends from point. Among the tropological resonances that I read from the film now is that a dancer on point is a metaphor for ballet, or even more accurately, romantic ballet. In 1832, when Marie Taglioni performed La, uh, in La Sylphide, it was the first time anyone danced on point, and ballet was irretrievably changed. It marked the moment that ballet became, as George Balanchine famously said, woman. Until Taglioni went up on point, virtuoso dancing was something men did. It was considered undignified for women. And they didn't wear shoes that would make it even possible. But if the dancer on point is now ballet, and moreover ballet as woman, the dancer descending from point is dancing. It is a meaningful dance step. Taking it as such, we might read the untying gesture of a ballet shoe differently as a symbol of the male dancer giving and then releasing his support of the ballerina. Although she makes use of his support, she does not require it. When he lets go of her, she continues to dance. In Goldstein's film, the descent from point takes eight seconds. That might seem like almost nothing, but in ballet, it is everything. Watching ballet, you must attune your eyes to what occurs in a very short space of time in order, for example, to see the dancer's line at the climax of a jeté, or to distinguish whether the dancer is dancing slightly in advance of the music or simply following it. Those eight seconds in a ballet shoe require considerable strength and control on the part of the dancer, and it really matters whether she simply moves off point or slowly and smoothly descends from point. I doubt that Goldstein knew the difference, but his dancer did. I didn't know it when I first wrote about a ballet shoe, but I do now. So I'll stop there, and Lynn will join me. <clears throat> <clears throat> Thank you, Douglas. Um, I want to begin by asking you about a distinction you make or have made often in my hearing. As we discussed your book as it came into being, as you wrote um, different chapters of it, you would often refer to it as a memoir project rather than a memoir. Can you tell me what for you was meant by that difference? 
I hesitate still to call it a memoir, but I always do. <laughs> I, I don't know what... It's the, the easy thing to say, my memoir. But it isn't a memoir, it's a hybrid. Uh, and I always knew that I wanted it to be a hybrid. I always knew that I wanted autobiographical elements, anecdotes, stories about myself, and at the same time, I wanted it to be a critical project. I wanted to return to this period, uh, the 1970s, uh, and my experience of it, my experience of this extremely experimental period in the art world and in the gay world simultaneously, and to put those two aspects of my life into a conversation in the larger context of New York City during this period uh, and the discourses of these two worlds in this period. And therefore, I, I hoped to actually change the standard narratives of experimental art in the 1970s in New York and the post-Stonewall gay liberation moment in New York. So a project, I guess, conveyed that for me. It was my memoir project, but the project project means m something more than a memoir. And, and something self-reflexive. You're thinking about the form of the memoir and, and how to restructure it, rework it, um, push and pull it into a shape that will be adequate to these goals. So and it's, it's almost a modernist project in its reflexivity and taking a form and reworking it. I hadn't even thought of that, um, but that's nice. Um, uh, but yes, it's, it, it became inevitably self-reflexive insofar as I, didn't, I don't simply tell my stories, but I, as you could see even from what little I r read about the Guggenheim job, I, I say that I've told this story over so many years and therefore I'm not sure how much of it is really my actual, my, my real memory of that period and how much of it is an embellished memory. And certainly one of the first things that I learned about myself at least that was that I don't have much of a memory <laughs> or, I, or I can't trust my memory and that this then became inevitably a research project. So much of it is also, even my own stories are reconstructed stories. I suppose that's true of many memoirs, but I don't think that many memoirs actually reflect on that process so much. Exactly. Yeah. One other aspect of that, and I think we could see it in the extracts you read, but in, it comes out particularly in the discussion of three artists, Daniel Buren, um, around which your first experience or your first um, year at the Guggenheim revolves. Uh, Agnes Martin, you curate the first show of her work in a non-commercial venue in 1971 in a show at the School of Visual Arts, and Ellsworth Kelly, whose work you write about a number of times, but in the early 70s you're writing an essay that is called, will get called um, Opaque Surfaces when you're theorizing about the state of contemporary painting, particularly abstract painting, and Kelly plays a strong role. And as each of these artists 
work is introduced around these events, you move very quickly into the present, sometimes to do a kind of revision of your early writing in the way that we saw with the Jack Goldstein. Um, sometimes in the case of Daniel Buren, at the time he has a retrospective back in the Guggenheim in 2005, or with Agnes Martin at the time of a multi-part retrospective at Deere. So these are artists who were um, very much part of your formative years and remain very much um, of interest to you. And in the very last page, when you're talking about multiple responses to pictures, you say that um, you're ambivalent about that, but I think we see this when you're talking about the responses and you're rethinking of Buren and Martin and Kelly, that you don't want to be historicized. And I think what's so interesting as one reads this book, it's a book in the present. Mm. You're speaking to us in the present through events that are current, but they involve the past. And so the reflexivity is partly thinking about the form, it's partly thinking about the past, but the past always seen from the present. Mm. I think on, on one level that's inevitable. I think one doesn't, you, we can't really literally return to the past, um, but it became a structuring principle in this book because I, because I was rewriting, and, uh, and even not just rewriting, but with Martin, for example, I, I did the show in 71, I wrote a couple of essays involving Martin's work in 73, and then I didn't think so much about Martin until you began to show her in the retrospective at DIA in the early 2000s, yes. or mid-2000s. <clears throat> and it was at that point that I returned to the literature on Martin, but I also, for the first time, encountered the film Gabriel, which uh, is an anomalous work in Martin's body of work, uh, which intrigued me because I'm also interested in film and at the time, in fact, I was writing my book on Andy Warhol's films. And that then became a primary subject of the Martin chapter. So that's a moment where I really am doing some critical work in the, in the present, but it is I, I, I can't imagine that I would have written an essay on Gabriel had I not been writing this, this book. So the book became something which occasioned for me the possibility of thinking about, in some cases, work that I hadn't thought that much about in the interim. Kelly is someone that I whose work I continue to follow because I've always loved Ellsworth Kelly's work and particularly the early work, the work that I was dealing with mostly in the period of the book. Um, but again, I'm not sure that I would have had occasion to write about Kelly's work had it not been for the, for the memoir. You say at the end of the first chapter um, where you're talking about the late 60s, early 70s, um, in this first decade at, in New York, you were negotiating between the queer world and the art world. And you write, and I quote, 
As I look back now, it occurs to me that one way I dealt with my quandary about how to be openly gay in the art world was to devote much of my early writing to women artists. Mm -hmm. Some of these are um, Agnes Martin, Joan Jonas, and others. And I find that very interesting and would like to ask you a bit more about it. None of these artists were feminists, avowedly feminists, I think, at that time. Um, none of them were uh, out as gay women, if of those who may have been. Mm -hmm. um, how did you see this as a way of negotiate? And, and you don't write about them in those terms either. No. What I'm thinking when I say that is not only of of Martin Jonas. Um, I became a reviewer for Art News in seventy three, seventy four, and. I, it was there, and at Art International as well, that I often chose to write about women artists. And at that point, by then, uh, the second wave feminism was very much underway. And I had a number of women friends, artist friends, who were feminists, like Pat Steer, mm -hmm. for example. And in fact, it was specifically Pat who recommended to me that I read th those early second wave feminist writers like Kate Millett, mm -hmm. Germaine Greer, and, and I did. And there was a very strong resonance at that moment for me, and I think for many people, between the critiques that the feminists were then making of patriarchy and what I felt as a gay man. Um, so that it, so it partly has to do literally with reading feminist writing, but it also had to do with my stronger comfort in being in the company of women, and therefore I tended to be I, I I surrounded myself with women and I paid a lot of attention to the women artists that I knew, and that's really continued to be the case. I've I've written. The majority of my writing is about women artists, I think, at least 50%, but maybe the majority. Um, so it, I think that's a, that statement that I make is, is, a, um, is an unexplained one, and I think you're right to ask me to explain it, and I probably should have explained it in the text, uh, what, what exactly I could have meant by that. But I think it, it, it did have to do with it, a, a, more of a sense of well-being in friendship among the women of the art world. The, the men in the art, the, the art world at the time was very macho. Mm. And of course that had an effect on women as well as women artists and how much attention was given to them. I do mention that a little bit about the, the fact that women being secondary in both the Warhol scene and the, the the back room scene at Max's Kansas City and the, the front room uh, with the minimal, post-minimal artists. There were women in, the, in those scenes, but they were not, they were not in any sense as many of them as the men, and they were <clears throat> not the most vocal, <laughs> I <laughs> suppose. It's not to say that I didn't have 
relationships with male artists and friendships with them. I became friendly with Buren when he was, when I got to know him at the, at the Guggenheim show in 71. Uh, I was friendly with Richard Serra. I was friendly with Lawrence Wiener. Uh, people that are represented in the Dwan show, for example, they were people that I knew at that time and, and was friendly with. But I didn't ever feel a great deal of comfort with them. And I don't remember having any gay male artist friends at that time. Mm. Ellsworth eventually like, knew very briefly in 73. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> um, you begin writing for Art News, um, whose roster of writers is dominated by poet critics mm -hmm. under John Ashbery, and soon find that you're most, much closer in spirit to Art Forum and to the people writing there, Rosalind Krauss, Annette Michelson, and others. And um, you say, at that time you were convinced, quote, with sufficient insight, a critic could, even should, determine what was historically significant at a given moment and explain why. Towards the end of the book, around 1977, you say that um, it's no longer possible to do that because Within that decade, the art world's grown so vast, you just can't know, you can't make those kinds of judgments. But it's not just that that changes your mind, as I understand it. You say that understanding your knowledge of art can never be anything but partial was liberating for me. Mm -hmm. Quote, it has allowed me to write about what attracts me, challenges me, or simply gives me pleasure without having to make a grand historical claim for it. That's a very big switch in a way. Um, and I think it's one that many of your generation who had strong um, ideological positions did not make. Mm -hmm. Can you say something about it and whether again this is part of being really coming, seeing yourself as differently positioned via some of the mainstream? It, that's, it's a switch that I didn't make as early as the late 70s. It's a switch that I've made much more recently, uh -huh. actually. And that sense of the art world as being not knowable mm -hmm. is, is, is a more recent one. I, I think still in 77 and when I did the picture show, I felt I could make a historical claim for the work. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the change really comes because I left art for a period of time when in my AIDS activist years and worked exclusively on AIDS and at that time became much more identified with cultural studies in the academy, with the emergence of queer theory, so that my whole approach to art objects uh, became one of uh, recognizing where where I was, where my subjectivity was in my determination to write about something. Um, so, and, and that, that of course comes from a whole host of things, but reading post-structuralist theory and turning to different theories of subjectivity. But more than anything else, it was a political, it was recognizing the political stake of, of, uh, declaring the reason that you want to make an argument that isn't a vast historical claim, but rather is one which is much more personal and subjective. 
So my, I articulated this, I think, first in relation to my interest in Andy Warhol and his films specifically when I was setting out to write the book on Warhol's films. Uh, and I wrote an essay called Getting the Warhol We Deserve where I made that, that argument about the stakes of one's argument quite clear. But then even after that, I suppose, once, and thanks very much to you because because of your organizing the Merce Cunningham events at DIA uh, and my falling in love with them and determining that I would write about them, I, through writing about dance, I came more and more to understand that I was writing about my own pleasure. But also, in many of the arguments that I've made about dance have to do with uh, the partiality of of viewing, uh, the, the partiality of being the subject in relation to the object, where in classical ballet, of course, your eye is trained in a particular way and there's an, an obvious position where you should be in the auditorium, but with Cunningham that is completely taken away. And then you are thrown back upon yourself and you have to make decisions. Will I look at this dancer or will I look at that dancer? Or will I try to move back and forth between the two? And then, of course, you become aware that uh, your viewing is partial, that, 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 that you don't see, I may see a dance completely differently because you're making different choices from me. Okay. Uh, so it became a position in a certain sense, but also a position that wasn't a position that fixed me somewhere, but that liberated me to, to, to follow my desires. Looking back, I was able in many ways to follow my desires, luckily, even during this period. When I wrote for Art International, there were a group of us who were New York correspondents, and we, could, we divvied up the shows that we were going to cover, and therefore I was able to say, I'm interested in Ellsworth Kelly, I'm interested in Agnes Martin, I'd like to do those shows, and, and I did. Uh, so. But even then, I think I was still under the sway that I had to make some kind of case uh, beyond uh, the pleasures and meanings that I, would, uh, that I would feel and interpret for works. Um, talking about positions and subjectivity and vantage points, so with Cunningham we have simultaneous things going on, a dispersed stage. No center point. You tell a very um, amusing and, and poignant story about um, when you first became a balletta main with Craig Owens, you would go three or four times a week to, to watch ballet and that you would always sit in particular seats and that that had something to do with the perspective literally and figuratively with which you saw this dance and at the same moment you're trying to, or you're immersing yourself in post-structuralist theory and you're trying to come to terms with it and they somehow wonderfully become interwoven. Right. That was one of the moments, this, this is a chapter called Agon, which is the title of a Balanchine's perhaps greatest ballet. And, uh, and it's about my friendship with Craig Owens 
who was then a fellow graduate student of mine at the Graduate Center at CUNY and who died of AIDS in 1990. And Craig was a true bolidomine. He was in love with both Balanchine and Suzanne Farrell, Farrell great, uh, Balanchine's greatest dancer, who was here in Washington, actually. And, um, and I fell in love with Balanchine and Farrell, too. Um, but at the same time, we were reading post-structuralist theory in graduate school. And right now, in the academy, there's a new dance studies field being, being um, established that's trying to bring a theoretical arguments to bear upon what has heretofore been uh, a field that is largely, uh, the writers are, are mostly journalists. Um, and I'm ambivalent about this uh, as I write on dance. So this was to be my chapter where I would somehow adjudicate the relation between ballet and theory. And something happened as I was working on it. Craig translated Jacques Derrida for October, and uh, he translated the Per Ergon and wrote an afterward to it. And so that became part of the subject of the chapter. And it just happened as I was thinking about it and researching it, that I pulled my copy of, of Grammatology, which is the first Balanchine book that was translated into English. And I had it on my shelf and I pulled it off. I think I wanted to read Gayatri Spivak's introduction to get some more of a purchase on Derrida. And, um, and I opened it and there it said, I had written on the title page of the book, uh, fourth ring double A low numbers below 20. And that is what Craig dictated to me as the seats that I should buy at the box office for New York City Ballet. So there was this note about the ballet in my Derrida book. And of course, I then remembered that these were the sidearm, these were very inexpensive seats, the fourth ring, sidearms. You couldn't buy them by subscription. If you got to the box office early, you could get one in three or two and four, which are the furthest back and therefore closest to a uh, a good angle on the stage, but still you're always at a very high and fairly oblique angle to what's going on in the stage. And that's where we always sat because of the expense. And as I was then thinking about the uh, arguments that I wanted to make about my experience of Balanchine's ballets, that were formulated during this time, I came to the realization that this obliquity mattered, uh, that I wasn't seeing them from this privileged position, but from truly a partial, uh, they weren't partial view seats, but close enough mm -hmm. to partial view seats. And that that changed my sense of the, uh, of the structure of Balanchine's work and made me realize that, in fact, he himself had already broken down much of the symmetries and the, the, the classicism of classical ballet, hence Balanchine as modernist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
That section where you're writing on, on classical ballet is, I think, the longest unbroken section. Um, the, in the book in general, there's this extraordinary weaving, as we've touched on, and you could um, appreciate from the extracts where Douglas starts at one moment and he segues and then he turns back and so he picks up past and present around Buren or Agnes Martin or so forth. And the segues are, are very deft and, and often amusing. For example, you're talking about spending holiday in the south of France, um, your host and friend you go with, and, and there's a dinner and this woman comes to dinner in an ermine and it turns out that she was the wrangler or owner of this baby Joe gorilla and somehow that takes you to what you did see around the Côte d'Azur, these particular historic houses, but that you didn't go to the Fondation Markt. And the whole point, it seems, of mentioning Fondation Markt is you're back with Ellsworth Kelly because Ellsworth Kelly's work was it, and you didn't see it. So, mm -hmm. so there are many different twists and turns. It's obviously not free associating. These are highly structured, but as I said, they're extremely deft, and you turn back and forth. But the that doesn't set up a pattern for the book because there's this very long section and remarkable section where you're writing about ballet with the authority and expertise of your writing on art history and elsewhere. And this is probably not what many people who don't know you well might expect. Mm. Um, obviously, as you said, it comes out of great experience of pleasure and what dance how you saw it, but can you say a bit more about it because it really is one of the most surprising sections of the book. It's true that there's, that it's the most sustained where the argument is not exactly start to finish because what is woven in there, of course, is the the Derrida and the, our use of Derrida for, the, for theorizing photography and the special issue of October on photography. But yes, the, it's one where I really am interested in making an argument about ballet all the way through. I think each, you know, each of these was written, uh, it was written, the whole book was written over a 10 year period. And although I, I had in mind what this book would be all along, uh, in its in its uh, general outlines, I knew what the chapters would be, what what would occasion them, but each one really took its own form. Partly because each one or many of them were written for particular occasions. When I was asked to give a lecture somewhere, or uh, in the case of the disco uh, piece, I was asked actually to contribute contribute to a special issue of a journal on disco. Um, but also a, a, just a, a, um, a, a daily practice of writing. And so sometimes there would be an associative uh, aspect of it. And sometimes there would be a research aspect that would, that would almost derail uh, one of my chapters, as in the case of my long section about the Watergate hearings in the Ellsworth Kelly chapter, because I listened to them 
on a transistor radio at, in Fire Island in the summer of 73. And that, was, that chapter was released in 1973. But I think probably with, uh, with Agon, I was more than with any other chapter engaged with a, an argument in my head about ballet and theory. And I really wanted to make some kind of a substantial contribution about that. It was written for a series of lectures in in England uh, on Raymond Williams's keywords, and my word was theory. So, uh, but I, so it 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 has the, the probably the least number of um, digressions. Although there is the digression about going uptown after the ballet to the gay bar, the nearby gay bar, and then downtown to a different gay bar on other occasions. So there are digressions, but, but not so much. I think, I think you're right that it's... So they're not... I think maybe something I like about the book is that there's no... It, it, there isn't that so much... It isn't even from chapter to exactly. chapter. Each chapter is really quite different from all of the others or has its own singularity, I think. Yeah. It has a freshness and a surprisingness as one moves through it. It's, and one doesn't feel you've dealt with or a topic or finished because, lo and behold, they may come up again, but from a different angle in a different set of relationships. And it's the fullness and complexity of your life in terms of your interests, I think, and your passions and mm -hmm. that really comes out without you having to kind of say, I did this and I did this. We never hear what you're writing a doctorate on. And there are huge areas not touched on. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a sense of the coexistence of these cultural worlds the queer world, the art world, the ballet world, the, the, that many, many people perhaps have multiple worlds mm -hmm. coexisting in their lives, but we don't um, see them being brought together typically mm -hmm. um, in, in books that fall under the heading of art history. Mm -hmm. I have a lot more questions, but I realize we're running out of time. So if there are questions in the audience, please put up your hand. Did everyone hear the question? Should I repeat it? Yes. I should repeat it? Yes. <laughs> uh, the question was about how, if I understand you, how my experience during this period of all of these different aspects of my life uh, um, contributed to my understanding of the art that I was writing about, and particularly in the, the case of the art of the pictures exhibition that I organized at Artist Space in 77. With that exhibition, it's hard, honestly, for me to take full credit for it because Helene Weiner, the director of Artist Space, uh, was much more in touch with the younger artists of, the, of that the, the artists of that generation than I was, and she steered me toward a group of artists. 
And I made choices then based on a longer list of artists that, that uh, she steered me toward. I think in, I inevitably, I, this is going to be a vague answer, but to, to come back to what Lynn was just saying, I think all of us really in our professional lives, unless they're terribly compartmented, our professional lives as writers, as exhibition makers, will be influenced by all these other unknown aspects of our lives. And some other interlocutors in, in readings before have mentioned this as well, that what we, don't, what we normally don't get from reading um, an art history of a particular period or the work of a particular cr critic is all of this background noise, all of this other stuff that is actually going on. Um, and that this book, in some ways, provides one example of it. But what I did with the picture show <clears throat> in two, on, in, twice was to figure out what this new work, then very, very new work and very unusual work in relation to what I had been seeing, what its lineage could have been, where it could have come from, what it was dealing with. And these were artists who were, in general, about 10 years younger than me, so it's a different generation. Um, and I didn't have exactly the same experience that those artists, like Cindy Sherman, for example, did, because I didn't grow up with television in quite the same way that people born 10 years after me did. Um, nevertheless, there were things that we had in common, and there were experiences that I could bring to bear, both from other art and from aspects of the culture at large uh, that would allow me to interpret the work, to say something that I thought would be meaningful about it. I did that first in 77 when I wrote the catalog essay. I wasn't particularly satisfied with it. I was reading, I was in graduate school and I was reading post-structuralist theory. I thought, well, this is a theory that is dealing with questions of representation these artists are dealing in a new way with questions of rep representation. They must somehow go together. And I tried putting them together, and I don't think terribly successfully. Then, a year and a half later, I wrote the second, the October version of the picture's essay, which became the one that is well known. <clears throat> and I, I got rid of a lot of that, actually, because it wasn't making so much sense to me. By then, also, I had seen Cindy Sherman's film stills, which were not in the original. She hadn't made them at the time of the original exhibition, and she wasn't in it. Um, but for me, they were determining. And I realized that something to do with performing, with performance, and the performative was crucial to, um, <coughs> to the work of these artists, and a number of them indeed were making performances or had some performative aspect of their work. So the fact that I was seeing Joan Jonas's performances at the same time, but also seeing Fassbinder's films at the same time, inevitably had some, some uh, uh, influence on what I was able to, to write. I, I would be hard pressed to really fully elaborate those influences, but surely um, 
they they mattered. I'm not sure I can articulate this very well, but when you write a book, having to put your thoughts into words clarifies your own thinking. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what did you most get out of this book that you learned about yourself that you didn't know before you wrote the book? Interesting. I'll repeat the question again. Uh, he's asking me, um, so that, that, that when you write a book, it, it clarifies your own thinking. And I, I think that's absolutely true about writing. But, so what <clears throat> did I most learn about myself in writing this book? Um, one thing I suppose that I learned, coming back to something that you said, Lynn, is I've, I, I learned that I had a very rich life <laughs> in this one decade, that I, I did an awful lot. And I wouldn't necessarily have thought that I did so many things, um, both professionally and because it, it's, a, it's definitely a period of my life when I was spending a great deal of time playing. I was having a very good time. It was my youth. And I must have had an enormous amount of energy. Uh, because I was also struggling, and I think that maybe this is something else that I learned, is that my knowledge that I was struggling is not so much in the book. It's a, it's a pretty happy book, in a way. The difficulties of my life, the, the, the fact that I was extremely poor, uh, I was supporting myself during most of this period by uh, teaching as an adjunct at the School of Visual Arts, which, which paid very badly. So I had a very small income. Uh, I was, I think, much more conflicted than I come across about whether or not I should have a boyfriend, um, or whether or not I could just play around, which is what I was mostly doing, uh, and which I've come to feel is fine, made me per perfectly happy, and so why not? Uh, as I say at one point in the book, pleasure is its own reward. Um, but I, so I, I think I've, I, I, I've learned that I have a sort of um, um, kind of golden perspective on, on my youth. Yep. The question is whether or not I would subject a, a later decade to a, another book. People have asked that. Is there going to be, someone said explicitly, is there going to be an after pictures? Um, my immediate answer is no. Uh, I, I, I don't, I think most of my really fun stories are from this period. And also there are people still in my life that I would have to figure out a way to write about that I don't particularly relish <laughs> writing about. And I, I think, and also if I were to move into the 80s, it would, the real story is about AIDS and I'm not ready to return to that. It was too, I, I, I just returned to it actually in a, two evenings of um, interviews for the Archives of American Art who are doing a, a full uh, oral history about art 
and AIDS, and I was one of the people that they interviewed. And it was, um, it's difficult um, for me. And so there are many difficulties involved, and, and, and I knew that this one would be a pleasure. And I think at this point in my life, I'm going to dedicate myself as much as possible to what pleasures remain to me. Perhaps that's a good moment to move on to other places. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.